The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. If you have a pew Bible, I guess we don't have pews. If you have a church Bible from the stack in the back there, that's on page 1008. Uh, Please follow with me as I read. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you for those of you who have prayed for me to get to this point. And um, I'm thankful to finally be able to after a couple of months. Thanks, guys. I'm thankful to have enough uh, strength to stand here, and I might wobble a little bit, but um, for the most part, I feel good. Um, Progress is going well. Um, I'll see Dr. McGinnis tomorrow, and he'll confirm that or not, (laughs) but uh, I have hope that things are going well. Things feel good. Um, I feel like I'm gaining strength by the day and by the week, and so hopefully um, within the next month, I'll be able to have my gait all back on my walk, and, and, and I'll be back to normal. That's my prayer, and that's my hope. Well, uh, if you're a guest here, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, that whole story that I just shared, um, I had an accident a couple of months ago, a car accident, where I broke my hip and my femur, and I've been uh, out of of preaching for a couple of months, and this is my first Sunday back. So um, I'll look forward to meeting you, if I haven't already, um, either after the service or at some other point. We are in a series on the chapter um, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And um, this chapter is written primarily as an encouragement to persevere in faith. That's why the writer gives all of these examples in Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 10, verse 36, a few verses before chapter 11, underscores this when the writer says, For you have need of endurance. You have a need to press on. You have a need to persevere. The earlier chapters of this letter, the writer is reminding these Christians who seem to be backsliding, who seem to be going toward Judaism and not toward Christ, who seem to be entertaining the idea of leaving Christ altogether. And he reminds them in strong ways and in wonderful ways to not do that. He provides warnings, very severe warnings about doing that. And he also provides great promises and encouragements as reasons not to abandon Jesus and return to their former life or to return to a religion that is devoid of Jesus altogether. So they have need of endurance and he provides chapter 11 as encouragement to persevere. And he gives all these examples of people who didn't quit on God when it was very tough and it would have been very easy to do so. He gives examples of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah who all would have had reasons to walk away from the Lord. Abel wasn't necessarily having a great relationship with his brother. Noah was in the midst of a very discouraging situation. Abraham, 
being asked to leave his homeland altogether and go live in a tent somewhere. And Sarah being asked to go ahead and get the crib ready at 90 years old. I mean, all these things are just bizarre and strange and would have been reasons for all of these saints to throw in the towel. But they didn't. They persevered. They held fast to God's promise. And chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, which are the verses we're going to consider this morning, we don't have an example of a particular person. Rather, in this section, we have a commentary on what the writer has already said. And he's not talking about any one person and what they did by faith. Rather, he's talking about the heart of those who live and die in faith. In other words, he's focusing on the inner experience of faith, the desires of faith, what faith seeks after, rather than what faith looks like on the outside when people are living by faith. With Abel, we see what he's doing. He's offering a sacrifice better than Cain's because it was in obedience to God. In Enoch, we see one who is walking with God. In Noah, we see someone who's building an ark. There's an action. There's something that's going on. In Abraham, we see him leaving a homeland. In Sarah, we see her waiting for God's fulfillment of the promised child. But in verses 13 through 16, we find no such person. Rather, we find a commentary about the desires of faith. What is going on with faith? It gives us a window into how these men and women were able to live by faith. What promises were they believing that motivated the decisions that they made? And so this morning, we're going to look at those desires. And I think there's just this amazing statement in verse 16. Just a startling, amazing statement in the middle of the the verse where it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What a wonderful verse of scripture. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now what's the opposite of being ashamed? If God were to state it positively, how would he say it? I am not ashamed to be called your God. Rather, I am proud pleased to be called your God. God is proud to be Abraham's God. God is proud to be Sarah's God. God is proud to be Enoch's God. God is proud to be Noah's God. God is proud to be Abel's God. What would make God proud to be our God? Well, it's that question that I want us to answer this morning. What would make God proud or not ashamed to be our God. And there's three things in this passage that help us answer that question. Here's the first one. God prepares a city for us. God prepares a city for us. We see that at the end of verse 16, where it says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Now, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, this city is in the future. If you want to look there with me, flip your, if you have your Bible in front of you, you can turn a couple pages, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, where it says, for here, 
that is in this life on this earth, we have no lasting city. For we seek the city that is to come, which would be lasting. Why would it be a lasting city? Because it's a city that's been, that is being built by God himself. Chapter 11, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city, that is Abraham, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And verse 16 spells out exactly where that city is when it says at the beginning of verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country or city that is a heavenly one. So we've got this idea of a city or a country or a homeland, a place to live that is in the future, that is lasting, that is permanent, that is secure, that is forever, that is being built by God. This is the city that is being described here in verse 16. And this is the city that all of these who are living by faith are looking to. It's a permanent city. It's a lasting city. It's a happy city. It's a city that's described at the end of the Bible in the last couple chapters in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And what a city it is. What a city we see there. We see a city without war, without pollution, without graffiti and trash and peeling or rotting paint or dead grass or broken bottles or gang activity or in-your-face confrontations or domestic strife or violence or danger or threat or arson or lying or stealing or killing or vandalism or ugliness at all. We don't see any of those things in that city. Rather, we see a perfect city because God is in it. We see a city where we will walk with him and talk with him and he will manifest his presence in every single part of it. In all that is beautiful and holy and true and righteous and happy will be there because God is there. Perfect justice is there. And there is recompense for every pain that has been suffered by the people who are there. It will never deteriorate. In fact, it's going to shine brighter and brighter and brighter as eternity stretches out into the unending ages of increasing and eternal joy. That's the city that we are looking forward to and that these saints in Hebrews 11 were looking forward to. But you might ask, how would this city come about? I mean, this seems a bit of a fairy tale, doesn't it? Sort of in the end, it all turns out okay. Well, we have to understand the whole story of the Bible before we get to that city. How does that city happen? Well, the Bible begins in a garden, which was meant to be developed into a righteous country and righteous city, which wasn't. And God, the story of the Bible is how God reclaims his original intention in the garden to bring about a righteous country on the earth, a righteous city on the earth. As Albert Walters in his book, Creation Regain, writes, he sums up the Bible just like this. God hangs on to his fallen original creation. That's the world in which we're living now. And he salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to save his original project. Humankind, which has botched 
its original mandate and the whole creation along with it is given another chance in Christ. We are reinstated as God's managers on earth. The original good creation is to be restored. And again, we see this in Hebrews chapter 13, where it says in verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him, that is Jesus, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Notice, the writer of the Hebrews believes that the reason that we're going to get to a lasting city is because Jesus himself suffered outside the camp on the cross bearing our reproach, our sin, in order to sanctify us through his own blood. Because guess what? We don't get to a righteous city, a holy city, a heavenly city, unless we're made like that, holy and righteous. And the only way we sinners get made holy and righteous is by the sacrifice of Christ for us. And we entrust ourselves to his saving work, that what he did on the cross, bearing our sins and his righteous life, which he worked out, in 33 years, is given to us and credited to our account, and we're made righteous in him. And on that basis, we can enter into that city. And on that basis, does that city come into existence at all? So God prepares a city, and these saints look to it. The content of their faith was future. They looked at an inhabitants, a permanent place to live and dwell in community and joy and peace. And their faith grabbed onto it with everything they had. Is your faith anchored in that city? Are you looking to that home? Or is this your home? Well, God prepared for them a city, and that was one object of their faith. But here's the second point. So God prepares a city. Point number two, we desire that city. We desire that city. Let's look back at Hebrews 11, verse 16. But as it is, they desire... There's the key word. They desire, that is those who live by faith, all these who died in faith, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So they desire this. They want this. And they see this city as better than the one that they have now. They look ahead and they see a new heavens and a new earth. And they look at this present earth, which is so broken And so fleeting in its ability to give the lasting happiness that only this city can provide with God in it. That they look at that and they say, that's a better country. That's a better thing to be in. And they desire it because it's better. Because it's better. Verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking, seeking, seeking a homeland. So there's this language of seeking and desire that is critical to faith. Now think about this for a moment. Who doesn't want God to be unashamed of being their God? What must we do 
to have God say of us, I'm proud to be your God. I'm pleased to be your God. I love the fact that you call me your God. What do we have to do? Some great exploit for him to be proud of. You know, we got to perform really well so he can say, that's my son or that's my daughter. Way to go. Some high moral achievement to impress him. Some ability to go into a period of sustained non-sinning for months on end. No, the simple and stunning answer is this. Desire the better country he has made for you. Desire it. Desire the city of God over the city of man. Desire heaven over earth. Desire God over everything non-God. That's what faith is on the inside. Faith desires God and the city that God has made for us more than it desires what the world can give and provide. So faith in God means desiring God and all that God wants to give to us. And God has a better country prepared. It's a heavenly city. Its life is better than than any earthly city in its life. And he says, you want me to be proud to be your God? You want me to be pleased? You want me to love being your God? Just desire the city I've given you. Consider it a better country because that's exactly what it is. Now, the truth is, and I want to speak to any of us here this morning who are not sure where we stand with the Lord right now. The truth is, is that at some level, every single human being desires this city, whether they realize it or not. In fact, as Randy Alcorn says in his book, Heaven, quote, nothing is more often misdiagnosed in our world than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen TV, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. We think that's what we want, but what we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. And our pursuits of all those things are really the pursuit of a lasting and better country that we hope will be supplied by what we're pursuing. And the vacation goes so fast, doesn't it? And the new car smell goes so fast, doesn't it? And the movie that we look so forward to seeing, we don't even think about a week later. It's just so quick. It's fleeting. It escapes us. As soon as we grab onto it, it's gone. You know what? The most tragic thing about human existence lies in the fact that the pleasure which we find in the things of this life, however good that that pleasure may be in itself, is always taken away. The things for which men strive hardly ever turn out to be as satisfying as they expected them to be. And in rare cases in which they do, sooner or later they're snatched away. But here's good news. For the Christian, all those partial, broken, and fleeting perfections which the glimpses in this world around us give, which wither in our grasp and are snatched away from us, even while they wither, they're found again. Perfect, complete, and lasting 
in the absolute beauty of God that enraptures the whole earth and the new heavens and the new earth. What we love about this life, marriage and family and relationships and food and beauty and rest and work, yes. Though met with much thorns and thistles, marriage and family and relationships and food and beauty and rest and work and all the things we really love that give us life and joy. These are the things that resonate with the life that we were made for. The things which we love are not merely the best this life has to offer. They are trailers. They're movie trailers of coming attractions. They're previews of the real thing of the greater life to come, of the better country that God has made for us. And here's the deal. If we try to pursue work, marriage, family, relationships, food, beauty, rest, as an end in itself, in this life, we will be disappointed, disillusioned, and disenchanted. Because we'll have to keep moving from one thing to another to keep trying to fill this cup that the Lord has not meant for us to fill with those things alone. But if we will devote ourselves to glimpsing forward to the better city, the better country, and enjoy this stuff as it comes to us without gripping it with all of our life, with all of our heart and all of our life and hoping that under no circumstances will it ever go away. If we will open our hands and let God give joy as God designs it and not terminate on it, and not have to have it all the time, then we will find that by faith, our longing for that better country, that greater city, that city that God has made will be intensified through those things. Like C.S. Lewis put it, you aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you get neither. Think about that. You aim at heaven you'll get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you're going to get neither. So we desire that city. It's, it's written throughout our movies, our television shows, everything. There's this longing in the human heart for community and hope and joy and, yes, even redemption. And you see it through the stories we tell and the things we tell ourselves. So God prepares a city. We desire that city. Thirdly and lastly, our life gets shaped by that city. Our life here and now gets shaped by that city. So you want God to not be ashamed to be called your God? You want God to delight in the fact that you name him as yours? Well then, desire the city that God has prepared for you and then let your life now be shaped by it. Now, what does that life look like? I think that's what the rest of Hebrews chapter 13 through 16, verses 13 through 15 actually talk about. That this is what the life that is shaped by that city looks like. And I want to, I want to mention five of them. All right, so we can, we can look at our own lives and then measure them against Scripture here. All right, so here's the first one. What is a life that's being shaped by that future country, that future hope, that city that God has prepared for us look like now? First of all, it's a life that's marked by countercultural obedience. 
It's a mark. It's a life that's marked by counter cultural obedience. Think about it. Noah built an ark in the desert. Abraham left a good stable community to go live as a pilgrim. A 90 year old woman bought a crib and a father, as we'll see next week, lifted a knife over his only son. I mean, there's some weirdness to faith. There is some weirdness to faith. There is some counterculturalness to faith. Maybe it looks like sticking with the Lord when all around you is giving way. When there is every reason to turn your back on the Lord, you don't. Life's not turning out the way it was, you thought it was supposed to go, but yet... You're walking with the Lord. You're following the Lord. You're turning from your sin. You're not a perfect Christian by any means. There isn't such a thing. But you're following, and, all, and, and everything's going wrong, but you're sticking in the game. You're staying with the Lord. That's countercultural. Because things don't go your way in our country, you bail on that and you get another option, right? You don't stick with something that is not delivering, it's bad customer service. But not for the Christian, not someone who knows that their best life is not now, but their best life is that country that God is preparing for them. They're not going to give up on that city. Maybe it's sticking in in a marriage. It's not turning out the way you thought it would. And you're committed to keep pulling weeds and keep sowing flowers day after day after day after day. Maybe it means humbling yourself before another brother or sister and confessing your sin that you've been trapped in for 15 years and asking for help and seeking help from your gospel community group in that way to hold you accountable and to encourage you in the gospel. Maybe it's joining a gospel community group and opening your life up to accountability and vulnerability because you really want to get to that city. And Hebrews would tell you that unless you have that sort of accountability in your life where people are speaking truth to you and encouraging you every day, as long as it's called today, Hebrews 3, lest there be in any of you a deceitful heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Your soul needs routine maintenance that you cannot provide. And it's called the church of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't happen sitting here. It happens side by side and arm in arm and face to face with other brothers and sisters who love you and are committed to you and are committed to helping you to get to the better country come hell or high water. That's what the church is. By God's grace, we want to hold one another up, push one another forward, help each other toward heaven. That's countercultural because that requires you build your life a different way and set your priorities a different way. And determine what you're going to say yes to and what you're going to say no to. And you're going to say, wait, will saying yes to this thing detract me from loving the church, caring for the church, serving the church, loving the people of God? Those are the kinds of things that, that countercultural obedience demands because we live in an individualistic culture, me first. And countercultural obedience means, no, I'm going to, we first. I'm going to make my decisions in light of what will help not just me, but all those whom God has called me to love and care for and serve. 
starting with my family, spilling over into my church, into my work, and into my community. So that's countercultural. Got to move on. Second one. It will be a, mar- a life that's marked by an unfulfilled longing. A life that's shaped by the city that is to come will be a life that's marked by unfulfilled longing. Look at verse 13. These all, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. I think the main people or person that the phrase these all is referring to is probably Abraham and Sarah. Because Enoch didn't die. But in a sense, think about it. Abraham, even though he saw Sarah conceive, he did not get to see the fulfillment of that promise that your children will be as great as the stars of heaven. He didn't get to see that. Neither did Sarah. Even though that was God's promise to them, God said, look, in verse 12, therefore from one man and him and his... And him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. They never saw any of that. They all died in faith, not having received what was promised. But having seen them, knowing that they were going to come to pass and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. On the earth. So this unfulfilled longing is characteristic of our lives as we're being shaped by that future city. It means, this is what it means. It means they died still believing, but not yet possessing everything that they set their hope upon. And if you die before Christ comes back, the same will be true for you. You will die without having received everything that you set your hope upon. You know why? New heavens and new earth won't be here yet. Resurrected body won't be here yet. Your soul will depart to be with the Lord, and that's far better. (laughs) Believe me, it'll get great, but it's going to get greater. And Abraham did not see his children as the stars of heaven. And we won't see all of God's promises fulfilled to us if we die before Christ returns either. How often are we told, even by well-meaning Christians, if you trust Jesus, your life's going to get better. You'll get better at your work. You'll be a better husband or wife or parent. You'll have less stress. You'll lose weight. All those things. And yes, some of that might come true by virtue of your following Christ. But listen. It's not going to get, you're not going to get everything you hope for and want in this life. And a life that's shaped by that city is okay with that. We scorn the hashtag Y-O-L-O. You only live once for those of you who, it took me a while to figure that one out. I'm like, YOLO, is that some new, new yogurt? (laughs) how behind the times I am. No, but we scorn that idea. Why? 
Because we don't get one trip around the earth. Are you kidding me? We get an eternity of trips around the earth. If we're a child of God, we don't go around once. That's pagan to the core. We don't just get one earthly life. We get one far better and without end. When this life ends and we go to be with Christ and Christ returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth, we're going to inhabit a new earth. We're going to live with God, the God that we cherish and the people we love as an undying person on an undying earth. You only live once. No, not for the Christian, not for the Christian. We can leave things marked off the bucket list. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. In the truest sense, Christian pilgrims have the best of both worlds. We have joy whenever this world reminds us of the next, and we take solace whenever it does not. In the truest sense, Christian pilgrims have the best of both worlds. We have joy whenever this world reminds us of the next, and we take solace whenever it does not. Because we know we have a better country. So we're marked by countercultural obedience, unfulfilled longing. Thirdly, confident security. Confident security. And this we see in verse 14. For people who speak thus in this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now that's an amazing statement. They are seeking a homeland, a place of permanent residence. That's what a homeland is. It seems like these people who are living by faith don't consider this to be their homeland. This is not their place of permanent residence. They're seeking a place of permanent residence. They're seeking a homeland. Well, why are, why are they doing that? Again, back to verse 10 earlier in the chapter. For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Obviously, meaning that this earthly country, this earth, does not have foundations. It doesn't. Something can be snatched away, taken, gone, gone, gone. It doesn't have any foundations. It's very rocky. Isis means this world does not have any sort of foundation. To use one example. I mean, this world is not, our secu- is not as secure as any of us think it is. We all believe the world is way more secure than we think it is. And it isn't. Not compared to that heavenly country. That's the secure place. That's the firm place. That's the city that has foundations. That's the place where we set our hope. That is a place of security. And that's what these people believed. They believed that this was not the life we were made for ultimately at all. And that the homeland that we desire and that we seek is the better country that God is preparing for us. So it's marked by confident security. They're convinced that this is not the homeland. This is not the place. This is not our future. Our future is there. Our security is there. That's our homeland. So marked by countercultural obedience, unfulfilled longing, confident security. Fourthly, it's marked by deliberate tenacity. Deliberate tenacity. Look at verse 15. 
If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Abraham and Sarah thinking back to Ur of the Chaldees where they came from, if they had been thinking about that, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. See what's going on here? When they turned their back, they turned their back. When they walked away, they walked away. There's a certain tenacity to their faith. They said, we're not, we're not looking back to that place. We're looking forward. Because if we look back, guess what? We're not looking at anything better. We're looking at worse. So we're going to look forward to the better. And that's what their faith did. Their faith took God up on his offer of a better homeland. When God came to them and said, listen, Abraham, I'm going to throw, or Abram at the time, Abram, I'm going to throw a wacky promise at you. You're going to have a hard time believing it, but listen to me. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a great nation from you. Now go. And, you know, Abraham might've reacted, you know, can't we just do that here? You know, we can do it right here. Doesn't require that I go. No, no, you have to go, go. And so Abraham went and notice we get an inside look at what's going on with Abraham here. What's motivating him is this desire for a better country. He says, you can stay, you know, it's almost like he's, he's wrestling in his brain. Okay. I can stay here or I can go with God. If I stay here, that's going to be probably more comfortable. I mean, way more comfortable. He's asking me to go live in a tent. And I don't, I don't have any certainty of when this promise is going to be fulfilled. He says, trust me, I'm, you know, I'm going to do it. And so he's wrestling here with all this. And, but he's listening to God's promise and he's, and he's weighing it. And he's saying, that's better. That's better. Because God always comes to us with the better offer. Always. It's just whether or not we're going to have the faith to believe it or not. And God comes to Abraham with the better offer And he takes it and he leaves the country and he doesn't look back, which is what Jesus says his disciples ought to do. When we lay our hand to the plow, Luke 9, 62, we don't look back. We go forward. And so there's this tenacity that's to characterize our faith. And it's, it's to be a, it's to be a tenacity that is deliberate and intentional. It's going to require a fight. I mean, imagine how tempting it was in that desert as Abraham was sitting there walking, walking camels in front of him, just on the train, just, you know, going and think I'm so hot. It's so miserable. We didn't have AC back there, but it, at least we could get some shelter from the sun, but he didn't entertain those thoughts. He would fight those things by faith. No. We desire a better country that is a heavenly one. God will keep his promises. And God looked at that while they were sweating in the desert. And he said, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. I am not ashamed to be called their God. Finally and fifthly, countercultural obedience, unfulfilled longing, confident security, deliberate tenacity, Reliance upon Jesus. Reliance upon Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me, please.
do so. This will be our last text that we turn to before we wrap up this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. This is the only other place in, the, in, the, in this whole book that mentions God not being ashamed to be our God. It's twice. It shows up in the verse we're considering this morning, verse 11, 16, or chapter 11, verse 16, and in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Notice this. Start at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So there you have Jesus, the eternal God, humbling himself, becoming a man. That's what lower than the angels means. Crowned with glory and honor. That is because of his suffering and death and his resurrection, he is now reigning. And he did that so that he might taste death for us so that we wouldn't have to taste it ourselves, that he might bear our sins in his body. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, Jesus, from whom, or that's God, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, namely God. And that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. You see that? So Christ is not ashamed to call us, call us his brother. If we are relying on him and depending on him to taste death for us, to bring us to glory, to be the founder of our salvation, to sanctify us. If we're relying on him for that, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brother. That's why he came. And so it starts there. If we want God not to be ashamed to call our God, we first of all need Jesus not to be ashamed to be called our brother. And we get that by faith in him. And that's where the life of faith begins is reliance upon Christ and what he has done for me to, to, to save me from my sin, to bear the wrath of God for me, to live the life of obedience that I needed to live so that that city might welcome me one day. Now, let me close. Why would God be proud to be called the God of someone who desires him and his city over the city of the world. This is what we haven't answered yet. Why? Why is it this way? Why is it? I mean, I've stated the facts. God prepared a city. We desire it. Our lives are shaped by it. But why does that please God? Why is that the life that God desires? Here's why. Because when we desire Something that God has made, namely the city that is to come over this city, that says something about him and his worthiness to be trusted. Because desiring God honors God. That's why. When we desire someone or something that they have made for us, we call attention to their worth, don't we? Desiring is no great achievement on our part. Nobody brags about getting hungry, especially when a great steak is sitting right in front of you. Or if you don't like that, whatever meal you prefer. When a great meal is sitting right in front of you and you have desires, you're saying something about that meal and about the cook who prepared it, right? You honor the cook. When you desire the food they prepare, we honor God maximally, maximally when we desire the city he has prepared for us. So nobody can brag about it 
since God is more desirable than anything else in the whole universe and desiring God calls attention to his value, his worth. We have a need for safety. We have a need for security. And he has a city that he's prepared for us. And so when we desire this city above all else, everything else on earth, we honor the God who made it, the architect and builder of that city who has foundations. And when God is honored because of our desires, he is pleased and not ashamed to be called our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to dive into these few more verses into Hebrews 11 this morning and to consider this great thought that in Christ and by faith, you are not ashamed to be called our God. You are proud and pleased to be ours. We are thankful to be yours. Make us increasingly desirous for this lasting city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand.